Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. And today I'm going to continue a thread I started a few weeks ago concerning the early history of Charleston's police department, which was known simply as the Watch in the first century of Charleston's existence. This nocturnal force composed of unpaid citizens who guarded the streets from sunset to sunrise, played an extremely important role in the everyday life of early Charleston. But you won't find much written about it in the thousands of books and articles written about the history of this city. Today, we'll turn our time machine back to the twilight years of the 17th century, when the threat of a French invasion loomed over the entire Low Country. Following the outbreak of King William's War in 1689, the government of South Carolina descended into a brief period of political confusion. Stability returned in the autumn of 1692 with the establishment of a bicameral legislature that provided greater representation for the people of South Carolina. Soon afterwards, however, a bitter rivalry erupted between those who supported the authority and privileges reserved to the Lord's proprietors of Carolina and those who favored more liberal political and economic policies. Bickering between these two parties only served to prolong the stagnation of the infant colony, however, and ultimately to weaken its ability to repel either a foreign invasion or a domestic uprising. In an effort to resolve this factional crisis, the Lord's proprietors of Carolina sent one of their own, a Quaker proprietor named John Archdale, to help settle the political climate. During his brief but robust administration, which lasted from August of 1695 through October of 1696, Governor Archdale quieted the political divisions and coaxed the legislature into adopting several important measures to strengthen the colony's defenses. The timing of Governor Archdale's arrival proved fortuitous, as the ongoing war with France was then heating up in the Caribbean. In the early months of 1696, the inhabitants of South Carolina felt themselves always in danger from the incursions of pirates and privateers, and more especially at this time, the war still continuing, and the late reports of the great power the French king is designing for these parts. The strict observance of the night watch and vigilance in general suddenly seemed very important on the coastal islands as well as in urban Charleston. Accordingly, in March of 1696, the South Carolina General Assembly ratified several new laws designed to place the colony in a better posture of defense. Besides passing a revision of the Watch Act and an act to provide public funds for the construction of defensive fortifications in Charleston, the legislature also ratified a major overhaul of the colony's militia law, which had expired and was of no force. The Militia Act of March 1696, the earliest surviving law of its kind among the records of South Carolina, represents a major step in defining the duties and responsibilities of our colonial-era citizen soldiers. Following English tradition, it required all able-bodied white men, aged 16 to 60, to possess arms and to participate in regular military exercises for the common defense of the colony. Although this matter was not 
at that moment directly related to Charleston's urban night watch. The robust codification of the South Carolina militia in the spring of 1696 established a sort of defensive backstop that would have profound and long-lasting influence on the character of Charleston's night watch. The text of the latest Watch Act, ratified on the 16th of March, 1696, represents a major shift in practice at a moment of perceived crisis. The preamble laments that the constables who have hitherto had the care and charge of the watch in Charlestown have been very remiss and negligent therein, despite the fact that their duty was vital for the better preservation of the said town during this time of war and imminent danger. In place of the inattentive constables and volunteer watchmen, this law appointed a group of commissioners to raise the sum of 150 pounds per year by assessing a tax on the inhabitants of urban Charleston, householders, as well as every male above the age of 16 years that lives in the said town, and to use that money to hire and supervise a paid paramilitary watch. The new force was commanded by one captain, Richard Bellinger, who each night would personally, or by his deputy, lead a group of nine able men from the 10th day of March to the 10th day of October, and of five able men from the 10th day of October to the 10th day of March. For this service, Captain Bellinger was to receive 20 pounds per year, but the text of the law did not specify the salary of the hired watchman. Referring to the new Militia Act ratified just two weeks earlier, the Watch Act of March 1696 required the town's nocturnal watchmen to report for duty as well and completely armed and fixed with ammunition as any soldier is ordered and directed to be by the Militia Act. That is, each watchman was obliged to carry a good and sufficient gun, well fixed, a waterproof cartridge box loaded with pre-made cartridges of good powder and ball, several spare gun flints, and a sword, bayonet, or hatchet. This parity between the equipage of the town watch and the militia was to remain in force for many generations to come. The Watch Law of March 1696 also provides some of the earliest insight into the watchman's nightly routine, requiring the captain or his deputy and some or all of the watchmen to, quote, walk the rounds in Charlestown at 10 p.m., 1 a.m., and at dawn, and ring a small bell as they go along that the inhabitants may know they are in motion, end quote. From this quaint description, we learned for the first time that the watchmen spent only a portion of their night shift perambulating the town. Where they stood or sat or slept during the remainder of the night is unclear at this time, as the provincial legislature had not yet made any provisions for either sentry boxes or for a watch house for their shelter. The South Carolina legislature intended the Watch Act of March 1696 to be in force for seven years, but changes in the local and international political climate greatly shortened its life. At the end of October of that year, Governor John Archdale set sail for England and appointed his nephew, Joseph Blake, to be governor in his stead. Immediately after Archdale's departure, 
The legislature began dismantling some of the progressive, expensive laws enacted during the brief administration of the Quaker proprietor. A new militia act, ratified on the 5th of December, 1696, for example, completely repealed the Innovative Watch Act adopted just nine months earlier. Vigilance remained the government's paramount concern, as the members of the South Carolina General Assembly had been credibly informed our enemy, the French, have a design to attack, plunder, and destroy this town. In place of the salaried night watch, however, the legislature created an unsalaried hybrid of the traditional constable's watch combined with an urban militia patrol. The surviving records of this era don't articulate the reasons for this sudden reversal of policy, but it's likely that the unprecedented tax levied on all militia-aged men to hire a force of salaried watchmen proved just a little bit unpopular. The Watch Act of December 1696 directed the constables of Charleston to deliver to the governor within 10 days a list of all the men in town, which are above 16 years old and under 60. From this list, each constable was required to summon six able men to keep watch with him or them or their deputies in the said town from the hour of eight at night to the hour of six in the morning. This constable's watch was to begin immediately after the ratification of the law and to continue nightly until March 25th of the new year. From that day until the first day of October next, a period representing the longer, warmer days of the year, the inhabitants apparently perceived a heightened risk of enemy invasion. For the better defense and security of the town, therefore, the legislature placed the watch under the command of Charles Basden and William Smith, the captains of the town's two militia companies, during the warmer half of the year. Each night of their six months' tour of duty, the urban militia captains, or their inferior officers, were required to summon 20 men completely armed of their companies and with them to keep watch in the said town from the hour of nine at night till sun rising in the morning, and so every night for the term of time aforesaid, each person in his turn. As always, every man was allowed to send a substitute in his place, but apparently this traditional right had been abused by absent men sending unfit alternates. Starting with the Watch Act of December 1696, however, all future substitutes had to be approved by the commander of the watch before the beginning of their respective shifts, at the risk of a fine being imposed on the absent watchman. After nearly nine years of restless vigilance, the inhabitants of South Carolina welcomed the news of the conclusion of King William's War in the autumn of 1697. The likelihood of a French invasion now seemed remote, at least for the moment, and so the denizens of urban Charleston relaxed their collective anxieties. In this atmosphere of relative peace, the town's night watch, composed of two asymmetrical seasonal bodies supervised by different agents, but drawn from a single pool of able-bodied white men, must have seemed like an unnecessarily complicated structure. Irregularities in the nightly performance of the watch likely occurred as the town's collective vigilance declined in the winter of 1697. 
That relaxing trend was checked in February of 1698, however, when a disastrous fire consumed approximately one-third of the urban settlement and shocked the inhabitants back into a defensive posture. In October of that year, the South Carolina legislature authorized another significant refinement of the Watch Law, alleging again that the constables have been very remiss and negligent in keeping the watch in Charlestown, which at all times ought to be duly, strictly observed and performed, more especially since the late fatal and dismal conflagration. Like the earlier watch statutes, the 1698 law required the town's constables to make a list of inhabitants, aged 16 to 60, and nightly to summon six men, well-equipped with arms and ammunition as the act of militia directs, in the order that they appeared on the list. The new law retained the seasonal alteration of the watch calendar, but it dispensed with the seasonal division of duty between the town's constables and militia captains that had been enacted in December of 1696. Starting in October of 1698, the constable's watch served year-round, from the hour of eight at night to the hour of six in the morning, from the tenth day after the ratification of this act to the tenth day of March following, and from the hour of nine at night to the hour of four in the morning, from the tenth day of March to the tenth day of September following. After all of the men enrolled in the said list had watched one round, or had sent an approved able man in his place, the law directed the nightly draft of the watch to begin again at the head of the list. Although the 1698 watch law reduced the aggregate number of men patrolling the streets of Charleston each night throughout the year, it did authorize the governor or his appointed deputy in times of imminent danger to double the number of watchmen whenever they shall see occasion for a larger force. In the late summer of 1701, just four years after the conclusion of King William's War, the members of South Carolina's Commons House of Assembly met in Charleston to discuss recent political developments in Europe and in the Caribbean. After reviewing the latest intelligence and advice acquired from their neighboring colonies, the elected men cautiously agreed that they had just cause to believe that a war had already broken out or may soon break out between England and France and Spain. Tensions between these nations were percolating both at home and abroad, so authorities in South Carolina moved quickly to enact measures for the better protection of the colony. In late August 1701, the legislature ratified another revision of the Watch Act that again accused the town constables of being very remiss and negligent in keeping the watch in Charlestown. The text of this new law repeated most of the traditional practices outlined in previous acts, however, adding little that might be described as innovative. Rather than adopting radically new measures to address specific failures, as the legislature had tried to do in 1696, this new statute enacted several subtle changes designed to augment the constable's power and thus to make the performance of the watch more efficient and more effective. As in earlier statutes of this nature, the Watch Act of 1701 directs the constables of Charlestown to make a list of all the inhabitants of the town and to confirm the validity of the names on this list quarterly before the governor or justice of the quorum. 
beginning with the first names on the list. Each of the constables, in turn, shall each night summon five men, both equipped with arms and ammunition, as the act of militia directs, to keep watch with him or them or their deputies in the said town, from the hour of eight at night to the hour of five in the morning, from the twentieth day after the ratification of this act to the tenth day of March following, and for a similar but now lost nocturnal duration during the warmer months of the year. The new law authorized the town's constables to file suit against negligent watchmen and heads of households, including women, who did not supply an acceptable substitute or hire a man to fulfill their obligation. If a constable neglected to prosecute such defaulters, the law directed his fellow constables to bring suit against him. Substitute watchmen, mentioned in all of the earlier statutes, were now required to be approved by a justice of the peace before appearing for duty. Freeholders who sent an unacceptable substitute would be fined and prosecuted by the constables in the same manner as if he had not watched or not provided any man in his room. Although earlier watch acts provide modern readers very little insight into the duties and activities of watchmen during the hours when they were not walking their rounds, the Watch Act of 1701 informs us that sleeping was a popular way of passing the time. The new law imposed a fine of 40 shillings, not an insignificant sum, on any man found sleeping upon watch. If, after being convicted of such an offense by a justice of the peace, any watchman refused or neglected to pay that fine, the law directed the magistrate to have the watchman tied neck and heels two hours next morning after such conviction. Conspicuously absent from the early watch acts ratified by the South Carolina legislature is any reference to the location of a house or a building that served as a headquarters for the nocturnal watchmen and as a repository for the suspects they apprehended during the night. It is significant, therefore, that the Watch Act of August 1701 contains the earliest known reference to a watch house in urban Charleston. This law directed several commissioners to draw money out of the public treasury to build a brick watch house capable of containing 30 men with arms and so many sentry boxes as they shall think necessary for the better security of the watch. Further documentary evidence concerning the completion of these building projects is lacking, but surviving legislative records confirm that Charleston's first watch house, which we might call a police station, was in use by 1703. Built at the east end of Broad Street, within a piece of waterfront fortification known as the Half Moon Battery, that watch house was also the first public building in South Carolina, and it played a central role in the life of the town into the late 1760s. In fact, the Charleston Watch House is such an important and interesting subject that I'd like to put a bookmark here in our ongoing conversation about the town's early night watch and pick up the thread at a later date. A few weeks from now, we'll return to the story of the Watch House and also investigate a related mysterious structure from the late 1690s known only as the Cage. In the meantime, don't let the watchmen catch you on the streets at night
CCPL is your home for local history. If you'd like to learn more about our resources, discover upcoming programs, or just explore the Charleston Time Machine, check out the library's website at ccpl.org. Thanks for joining me aboard the Charleston Time Machine. This is Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.